I'm excited to be here with you this morning to continue in our Asking for a Friend series. Um, but before we start, um, there was something laid on my heart this morning, and I just want to share it with you, and then maybe we can pray together. With all the things that we see happening in the news and the loss of some of our servicemen, I'm reminded that Jesus promises us a place at the table. That's in his word. I'm reminded that he said he would prepare a room for us. That's a promise that's in his word. And so as we think about the events that are unfolding, I ask that we could join together and we could pray for the hearts of those families um, who are struggling through current loss, but I think also for those from the past, again, those today, but those in the future as well. Um, Would you join me in prayer this morning? Lord, we thank you so much that we can rely on your word. We thank you that your promises are true, as we just sang again and again and again. And you, uh, in your loving arms, your loving, huge hands that can handle and hold each and every one of us, Lord. We pray for those families who are struggling even right now to be reminded that you have prepared a place at your table. We love you, Lord, and we know that when we continue in your word, today and even moving forward, Lord, that we will begin to grasp through your spirit and understand the promises that you have given to us. So, Lord, in this time of struggle for us right now, may we depend on you, our God who loves, our God who is in control, our amazing God who we worship and we praise. We love you, Lord, and we lift this up to you, these families up to you, and thank you for the promises that we hold dear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Again, it is such a privilege to be able to share with you this morning as we continue in that Asking for a Friend series. And as Karen shared about our teens, I love the thought that as we, you sitting right here in this room, whoever's participated in um, student ministry or kids ministry, even one time you've poured into those kids and now they are leading us um, in worship and opening God's word. That is amazing and I'm so grateful for that, that you get to see that play out. I agree, that is a great thing, thank you. So this series that we're in is based on questions that you asked. So from our small groups, we polled our small groups and we said, what are the questions that are on your heart? And these are the things that they came back with. And I I thought, honestly, as I'm in my own faith journey and as, as I have come through many years, these are some of the questions I even had for myself. Some of these questions that we're asking, I had to wrestle with as well. So today, we're gonna touch the surface of the question, is the God of the Old and New Testament the same God? Is the God of the Old and New Testament the same God? So let me give you a clue, yes. I guess that's more than a clue, right? But what I have to do is not just tell you that, but why do I believe it's true? Why do I believe that? How do I know this? And that's what we're gonna dig into this morning a little bit, digging into God's word to find the answer to that question. So our first resource in answering the question must be his word, must be going to his word. So I ask you to consider this idea. The Bible is no ordinary book. It's no ordinary book. And I think this statement says it so well. It says, the word of God is not ink on a page. It is God's breath through his spirit on the page. It is living and it is active 
in our lives today. So his, his word shared through these pages is the breath of his spirit within us as he reveals his promises and his truth. It does the work of God through the spirit of God in the people of God. Now, true, it is not about the cover or the binding um, or the pages, the paper within it. It's the spirit of God within the believer that brings the book to life in our lives. So as God reveals himself from Genesis all the way to Revelation, these floodgates of insight and wisdom open up to us. And I don't use that term lightly. They are floodgates sometimes when you reach into his word. They are floodgates that are offered to us freely for those who have eyes to see, who have ears to hear, and who have hearts to change. For those people who desire to know him and know him well, may we be those people even today. So we're going to start to answer that topic by addressing this first question. Are both the Old and New Testaments relevant today? Are both the Old and New Testaments relevant? This is a question, again, that pops up in many believers' lives. And even when I began my journey for the first time, somebody had to explain to me, what is the Old Testament? What is the New Testament? I didn't understand it myself. And it's a mistake that we often make because we consider the Old and New Testaments different books. But they, aren't, they are one. They are one book. It's like, it would be like look, me looking at my life and starting from only today, right? Forgetting where I came from forgetting what I learned from my childhood, forgetting what I learned in my young adult years, and, and forgetting my past. That past that brings, all, brings it all forward. It helps me to be who I am today, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? It's all a part of who I am today. My past plays a role in who I have become, and the Old Testament plays a role in revealing who God is. So if you question the relevance of the Old Testament, I want to challenge you this morning. Let me ask you this. Do you believe in the words that Jesus spoke in the New Testament? Do you believe what Jesus said? If so, how do you reconcile all the times that Jesus quoted the Old Testament and all the times that he referenced the Old Testament as he taught? How do we reconcile that if we don't want to believe that it's relevant? If the Old Testament is no longer relevant, why did Jesus refer to it so often? In fact, what do we do with those verses that he used? Are they exceptions? Or are they references, those references, even from Jesus, irrelevant to us today? Well, of course, we know that nothing Jesus said or did is irrelevant to us in our faith journey today. If the writers of the New Testament thought so, we should think so as well. And it's very, very, very important to our topic. Because when we neglect the Old Testament and consider it as irrelevant, we base all that we know about God on what we learn through the New Testament. And of course, that is very, very, very important in our lives. Don't let me downplay that at all. But we miss some really important opportunities to know God more fully when we neglect half of the one book. Consider just this. If we neglect the Old Testament, we miss his power in love through creation. Right in the very beginning in Genesis, how can I leave that story out of understanding who God is? Because if I do, I miss the full story. Listen to Psalm 33:11. It says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart, to all generations, all generations, past, 
present today, and future, of course, all of those that will come after forever. His plans will stand firm through all generation. Every plan will come to be. Every one that he claims and promises in his word. Listen to the words of Jesus himself as he describes his own purpose here on earth. In Matthew 5, 17 to 18, this is what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, not until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not one will pass away until all is accomplished. So if I look at that, what is Jesus referring to? What does he mean by the law? Well, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they are all referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch or the books of the law. So when Jesus uses this term law, he's referring to all of those books, kind of a revealed um, instruction, a revelation as to what, how God's people should act and who they should be. Those books and the Old Testament teach people many, many things, including a way of life that is different from the way of life that they had lived in slavery in Egypt. Those laws included civil laws, a way to govern. They included moral laws, how they should relate and how they should interact with one another, how we should interact with one another. And they included ceremonial laws. Those were the festivals and remembrances and even the sacrifices. So those books, those five books of the law and the others, reveal much to us about God, about mankind, about salvation, about his plans, about his expectations for us. Many of the foundational biblical doctrines are taught right in the midst of those first five books of Scripture. So we cannot overlook their significance in the full story of God. Okay, having said that, let's admit there's a bit of a mystery that surrounds them. It can be very confusing. It's a different culture. Sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes it's confusing when we consider their lifestyles and their traditions. But through God's breath, through his spirit, he reveals what we need to know as we read through them. And we come back to Jesus who is teaching the people that he is the fulfillment of anything we might be confused about, of the mystery. He fulfilled the law by his person, by his teaching, and of course by his sacrifice. Now those leaders of Jesus' time, they followed the rules that were laid down by their ancestors, but they were missing something. They were missing the true purpose that was meant through those books. They missed the law that God desired to place on their hearts. How would they love? Who would they love? How would they interact? How would they be a people that are holy and separate for God's purposes? This is what John Stott wrote about Jesus. He said, he rejects the superficial interpretation of the law given by the scribes. He himself supplies the true interpretation. His purpose is not to change the law, still less to annul it, but to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. I love that. The full depth of meaning. Jesus guides us 
into that understanding. So there is much to learn from reading about God in the Old Testament. To neglect it is to hear only part of the story, and that just leads us to our own misinformed conclusion. Have you ever heard part of the story, and then you come to a conclusion that is completely wrong? We need to read and understand the whole story. So are both the Old Testament and New Testament relevant today? Yes, because together they provide for us the full story and a fuller picture of who God is. Okay, so maybe then the real question that we are asking here is not about the Old Testament and the New Testament, but rather, how do I look at all of Scripture and reconcile all the different characteristics of God that I read throughout the book? How do I reconcile everything that I read? Well, one book that I have turned to often um, by A.W. Tozer is called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a great book. It's a small book, but it has filled with a lot of um, great information. I found it invaluable in my greater understanding alongside his word of, of God. So I often quote the very first sentence in that book, and it comes right from chapter 1, very first sentence. It says, what comes into our mind, into my mind, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What I know about him is so important because it changes my understanding of who I am. What I know about God teaches me that I am loved. It teaches me that I am precious. It teaches me that he gives me a plan. Do I know that, God? Am I willing to understand that, God? My understanding of God teaches me the way to interact with other people, how to love other people better. And it teaches me the laws that I need to live by, those guidelines. God is unlike anything or anyone we could ever know or imagine. He is one of a kind, he is unique, and he is without comparison. I think even when we try to describe him with our own words, we fall short of capturing who he, who he is. It's like our language can't even begin to capture his full, his full glory. Our words cannot describe our holy God. So I'm going to pull some facts out from both the Old and the New Testament to give you some clues about God's character. Again, from the Old and from the New Testament. And we'll go through them quickly, but as we go through them, I want to ask you to consider this question as you hear them and as you see them on the screen. Is this what you believe about God? So as you hear about these attributes, is this what you believe about God? And we'll go through them. First, God is infinite. He was, is, and will be. We see that in Colossians and in Psalms, Old and New Testament. God is immutable. He never changes. We see that in Malachi and Hebrews. Of course, we see these things throughout Scripture, but I just give you some examples. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. We see it in John and Exodus. God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. We see it in Psalms and in Ephesians. He is omniscient, all-knowing. We see it in Isaiah and in 1 John. He is omnipresent everywhere, always. We see it in the Psalms and in Colossians. God is wisdom in Romans and Isaiah. He is faithful in Deuteronomy and Timothy. He is good in Psalms and James. He is just in Deuteronomy and Revelation. He is merciful in Romans and Exodus. He is gracious in Psalms and Ephesians. He is holy in Isaiah and Luke. And God is loving in John and Isaiah. And so much more. Is that what you know about God? Is it what I know about God? I think about all of these attributes, and we can only begin to comprehend God's love in the light of these other attributes, right? Because we see his love in the midst of his mercy. 
We see his love in the midst of his grace and even in the midst of his justice. The love of God is eternal, sovereign, unchanging, and infinite. Do we believe and understand that? So in order to know God, we have to know all of him. We have to view all of him as we read throughout scripture. Because to pick and choose, again, leaves us confused about that omnipotence. It leaves us confused about his grace. It leaves us confused about his mercy and his love. And it leaves us doubtful and struggling in our faith. Because if we can't understand these things about him and how he loves us, it can leave us doubting. I go back to the Tozer book. He says, God, God's being is unitary. It is not composed of a number of parts working harmoniously. It is simply one. There is nothing in his justice which forbids the exercise of his mercy. God is never at cross purposes with himself. No attribute of God is in conflict with another. Again, that's hard for us to comprehend in our limited understanding. Thankfully, I don't need to understand it all. I need to just trust and have faith in it. And so I thought a great example of God's character is found back in the book of Exodus. And I'm particularly looking at chapters 19 to 34. And no, we will not read them this morning. But that's where I'm getting um, these things are that I'm teaching you this morning. So we're going to take a moment to step back into those chapters and look at a time when God gave those Ten Commandments, those moral laws, to Moses and to the people. When we come to these chapters in Exodus, we know that the Israelites had survived the Ten Plagues. That's already done. They were released from bondage and had crossed the Red Sea, already done. All of these things, miraculous feats, in and of their own right. And they were now in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai. So this is where we see thousands and thousands of people. Now, a few times, the Lord had already called Moses from the mountain and told him to remind the people what he had done. Let, tell them what I've done, he said, and tell them that they must obey me and they must keep my covenant. Tell them this, because if they do, they will be my treasured possession among the peoples. God told Moses to tell the people that the earth was his and that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He told them this. And what did the people do? I have a couple of quotes for you. One from Exodus 19.8. They said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They were on board. And from Exodus 24.3, they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Again, they were on board. They were all in. They desired to be set apart from the other nations, consecrated for God. They were okay with what God had asked of them. And then call, God calls Moses up to the mountain. Only him. The other leaders, including the priest Aaron, which will be important in just a minute, must stay behind. God is going to give Moses the laws on a tablet, the tablets, those ten commandments that we read about. And I think this is really interesting too. The people could look on the mountain, and we read this in verse 24, 17. This is what they saw. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. There was no doubt that God was meeting with Moses on that mountain. No doubt in their minds because they could see it from where they stood. The people knew God was there and they knew Moses was with him. Now Moses remains on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and we read again in Exodus that there, he was, had no food or water while he was there. Who was he sustained by then? 
by God alone. So he was gone a little over a month, receiving these laws that would be for the benefit of God's peoples, laws that would set them apart from the other nations, make them a holy nation, exactly what they agreed to. But apparently, and I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, a little impatient, apparently 40 days was too long in the eyes of the people. So within these 40 days, something took a turn for the worse. The people began to get anxious. They began to question God. And certainly they began to question their leader, Moses. They had been rescued out of Egypt, but they weren't yet ready to give up their history of slavery and idolatry. And so they pushed Aaron the priest, whom Moses had left in charge. They pushed him until he gave in. They needed some kind of reassurance. Somehow they must satisfy their own lack of faith. Well, you probably know or have heard the story The people went back to their old ways, the one they had learned from generations and generations of captivity. They melted all their gold, and they built an idol, a golden calf. And they began to worship it in the hopes of receiving some kind of divine answer from this false idol or this false god. This is ironic to me, but at the same time, Moses is with God on the mountain. The people see it, right? Moses is with God on the mountain, and he's writing that first commandment on those tablets. You shall have no other gods before me. Yet the people, in their anxiousness, waiting, are creating this false god. So when Moses comes down the mountain and arrives on the scene, he's furious. So furious that he throws the tablets containing the commandments, the ones written in God's own hand, and they broke. I'm reading this story and I'm thinking, what would I do if I was Moses? What would you do if you were Moses in that scenario? What would you do if you were God? What would be justice in this scenario? They've already broken the very first commandment. They should have no other gods before their God. Now in this series, Craig shared the idea that we want to see justice but when it's someone else's, not when it's our own, right? Too often we look at the Old Testament in the very same way. God had saved the people, safely carried them through the Red Sea, and he was still caring for them. They weren't alone as they waited at the base of the mountain, but they were insecure and impatient and rebellious. Have you ever been there? They cried out to Aaron, the leader in charge while Moses was away, until he fell into their rebellion and submitted to their request. So whose choice was it? We have to think about that. Was it the people's choice or was it God's choice? Again and again, God had saved the people. You would have thought they trusted him. You would have thought they knew him. But in only a little over a month, they panicked and turned to whatever else they thought could save them. Even Aaron, this is where I come back to him, the priest who'd been chosen by God as Moses' sidekick, actually witnessed God in action. He's the one who spoke to Moses, to Pharaoh, when they were being released. Aaron lies and he gives Moses excuses. This is so telling to me. He blames the people. He claims he was only doing what they made him do. And he said, when, this is so interesting, this is in the um, ESV version. He said, when he threw that gold into the fire and melted it, all of a sudden, this is what is in the version, out came a calf. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. No, actually, earlier we read that Aaron actually formed the calf himself. 
It's reminiscent, I think, of tales that my own kids would tell, right? No, mom, see that window there? I was just going to clean it, and all of a sudden it shattered. Hmm. Aaron was a grown man, though. He was a priest, and he couldn't come up with something better? Can you imagine Moses' face as Aaron is staring right at him, telling this lie? Out came a calf. I mean, what do you do with that? He's staring the lie right in the face. But it reminds me, I am amazed at the lengths that we will go to to protect ourselves from our God who knows all. The lengths that we will go to even today to protect ourselves. Think about it. Did Aaron think Moses would really believe some outside force, some other God created this golden calf and was powerful enough to replace the one true God? It shows how far Aaron himself fell to temptation. And it reminds me, we are all subject to temptation when we forget who God is. Now, I'm also amazed at Moses, at his patience. He's angry, right? But he still loves those people. Those are his people. So he pleads to the Lord to save the people. Don't give them what they deserve, he says. Have mercy. So Moses goes so far as to say, in fact, take me instead. Blot my name out of the book. Take me instead. But it turns out, as we already know, that one of God's character traits is also love. And God loves the people even more than Moses could love the people. So Moses does return to the mountain a second time, and he asks for mercy. This time he's probably a little more distraught, I imagine, and he's a bit beside himself, so what does he do? He asks God, he asks to see God in all of his glory. Can I see you, God, in all of your glory? And in a moment of amazing love and grace, the Lord places Moses in a cleft in the rock in order to protect him, and then he reveals himself to Moses. It's as though he says to Moses, I know you, Moses, I know you by name. Trust me, and I know that you desire to follow me, and I chose you. Now let me reveal myself to you in your time of need. Let me tell you about my love and about my faithfulness. And this is what he says. It's found in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, and I think about this, injustice, there are consequences for those who don't turn to him, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Only because we do what we're taught. We do what we're taught. What we teach our children, they will teach their children, and they will teach their children. So we must remember to teach our children about God and his word. So we see God's character reflected on full display, right in the middle of full-on rebellion. These people are creating a false idol, and yet God is good, and he is faithful, and he is slow to anger, and he is patient, and he is loving and forgiving. Now, I could have looked at many stories in the Old Testament or the New Testament. I chose this one particularly because of that chaos and that rebellion, because none of that confuses our God. But it can confuse us if we don't know him. 
Moses knew him and knew his promises and trusted in him. Moses believed what God said, and Moses leaned in to God. The story reveals the character of my God, and I don't want to miss a part of it. Old Testament, New Testament. So in Moses' time of need, God shows him mercy and grace, and he shows us that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he is forgiving. Now, true, there would be consequences. He is just for those who do not turn back to him. Be careful, though. I caution you. We don't want to read the story and blame God for the consequences of the people's disobedience, do we? We don't want to blame God, even sometimes, for the consequences of our own disobedience. Throughout the Old and New Testament, our God offered that freedom for us to choose which side of the coin we wanted, but not the freedom to negotiate the results of the choice once it's made. Again, from my book in Tozer. A hard truth, but there is hope because we know our God is love. These people had already agreed in unity and pledged their own faithfulness. And just a short time later, they changed their mind and they changed their choice. We do it all the time in our own lives. I'm all in until I'm afraid or unsure or uncomfortable. Or maybe I see something more that I want or desire. But as Craig shared, again, God is just. Justice must be served. God cannot be one attribute without the other. So yes, God is just, but he is grace at the same time, and mercy and love, all in unity, all one. And I am so grateful for that. God's character, his mercy, provided a way for those Israelites who followed him. Moses interceded and asked for forgiveness and offered to take their place to have his own name blotted out of the book. But God is also forgiveness. In God's mercy, for those who chose repentance, they did not receive all that they deserved. In his mercy, I don't receive all that I deserve. Again and again and again, throughout the Old and New Testaments, we read about the goodness of God. And again, we sang about it this morning. He is good. It is a goodness that resounds from the beginning of creation, right from the start. He shows it when the first man and woman disobeyed him. Yes, there were consequences, but he also promises a way out. Justice will need to be satisfied, but it will be through the death of another. Jesus came to fulfill the law that we could not, so justice could be complete. In this act, I see the love of God so plain, so pure, and so uncontaminated. Our God in Exodus, the one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, is my God today, is your God today. Because from the beginning, God loved his creation, but humanity rebelled. The world began to spin a web of destruction against itself. And God, in his holiness and in his majesty, entered in and he met us right where we stood. There were consequences, but there was also mercy offered through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior today. And who is Jesus? Listen to how the New Testament writer Paul describes him. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is our Jesus. So throughout the scriptures, we read stories of destruction and pain and atrocities because of the choices of humanity. God created and we chose disobedience, and it's awful, and it's unfair, and it often feels very, very unjust. But is that the fault of God or man? A hard truth. So would we rather remove our ability to choose? If we remove our ability to choose, then we remove our ability to love. And real love must involve the freedom of choice or it isn't real at all. So the Old and New Testaments share a story of a God who loves, who shows his mercy and grace, who shows his power and his authority, and he reveals himself through all of these pages. The word of God is not ink on a page. It is God's breath through his spirit on the page, and it is living and active in our lives today. Only this revelation can provide understanding, allowing us to form a confident and accurate image of our God. Because we can form those opinions based on experience, but God is experienced through revelation. So now it's up to us. Our own attitude determines how we will receive him. What we know about God determines everything about us. And so how we receive him changes how we will react to the world around us. Lou Giglio wrote a book a while back called, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. And he made a list of statements that I want to share with you this morning. When God revealed himself as I am to Moses, as Giglio writes, he was saying of God, saying, I am the center of everything. I am running the show. I am the same every day and forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I am the creator and sustainer of life. I am the savior. I am more than enough. I am inexhaustible and immovable. I am God. In retrospect, consider what that means for us. I am not running anything. I am not the head of anything. I am not in charge of anything. I am not the maker. I am not the savior. I am not holding it all together. I am not all-knowing, and I am not God. I am made a promise right from the beginning to redeem his people. Throughout the pages of the Old and New Testament, he never changed his promises. Through mercy, we did not receive what we deserve. Through grace, he promised us redemption. And because of his love, he reveals himself to us at just the right time, in just the right way, just as he did for Moses, so he does for us. Because his promises are true, he promised redemption from the beginning, and so Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, whom by all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities created through him and for him. He promised Jesus who is before all things, through whom all things hold together. He promised Jesus, the head of the body, 
and the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, preeminent in everything. He promised Jesus in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus was to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in the blood, through the blood of his cross. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. This is Jesus. Will you follow him today? And maybe that's a question on your heart this morning. Maybe you are contemplating, whether you're watching us online or present with us in Canandaigua, will you make that choice to accept him and his promises in your life today? My question for you all is, do you believe, do I believe, what he said. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for what you said. I thank you for the promises that you have revealed through your Holy Spirit so that we might be in right relationship with you. Lord, so that we might know and honor and follow and understand you more fully. And Lord, if there is someone out there this morning and you, they are on the, it's on the tip of their tongue, on the tip of their heart, to follow you, Lord. I pray that um, through your sovereign grace that you would help them to take that step, that you would open their hearts and create a path, Lord, for them to come to you and to know you, their Savior, their God, their Creator. So in all of this, Lord, as we look at this book, more than ink on a page, your Holy Spirit given to us as we begin to understand and you reveal those truths. I pray that we would take that with us wherever we go, that it would be prominent in our lives as we teach our children who teach their children who teach their children. Lord, I pray that we would depend and lean on you and know that you are good. We love you, Lord, and we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.